All right, good morning. I have uh, the, the privilege to share God's word with you this morning. And who remembers what the Easter theme was from last Sunday? Quiz. What's up with up? Up, right? Um, the best way I can just simplify it is, is that there was, uh, we all have essentially an anchor weight that's keeping us down sin, and Jesus came and he completely removed at the root its ability to hold us down and sent us on a trajectory that not only is a destination, which is a relationship with our creator, with our heavenly father for eternity, but it also sets in motion a trajectory that is good along the way. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we're going to, uh, uh, Joanna, if you can help me with the first slide. We're going to be moving in to a season to step up, playing off that up theme. Now, if I was sitting in the chair listening to what I just said, this is what I would do. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? You're going to really ask me to do something more than I'm already doing? Really? My life is already busy enough. Who had that, uh, who had that reaction? okay, I did the first time. When the Lord told me about a season to step up, I was like, oh my goodness, am I really going to have to sign up for more stuff? Um, but I'd really like to recapture that phrase because um, it's been probably overused and it, it's uh, uh, literally, I think we need to take an assertive step up out of the noise, the mess, the distractions, the constant demands on our attention and reclaim the influence of the early church. I don't want to just copy what they do. I don't really want to change in my Clarks for sandals. Um, and I don't really want to uh, um, trade in my car for walking a Sabbath day's journey from my home to church. But I do want to recapture some of the influence that the early church had today. Influence is the capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of people and culture. And it doesn't take a lot of activity to have a lot of influence. Influence is more a function of your power than your busyness. And there's not really a shortage of power in the kingdom, is there? So the scripture theme that I want to just set for this season, which we're going to be in probably for the next three months, a season to step up, less activity, more influence, the lifestyle of the early church, is from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, the followers of Christ, that's us, that's you and me, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. How many things are in that list? Who thinks it's four? Well, how many commas are there? There's just one. So how many things come how many things are there in that list? Come on. Did anyone take grammar? Am I the only one who had a sixth grade teacher for a mom? 
There's two things in that list. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's one thing. And to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's they, they weren't part, they didn't have the, uh, the benefit of the, you don't need a comma after the third item. Like, they, they weren't retrained in that kind of uh, grammar. There are two things in that list. And why was it said that way? Well, just to take a look at the first thing, apostles teaching into fellowship, we might think that teaching is something like in a classroom. Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to learn some philosophies and some ideas and things. Um, But it actually has to do with modeling the lifestyle of the messengers who had miraculous power whom Jesus sent. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was to the apostles' instruction. It kind of had, the Greek word is about the apostles' lifestyle. Literally, the followers of Jesus, they said, okay, well, this is, we see the apostles, the the 12 disciples or the people that... um, that Jesus commissioned and the other apostles that he commissioned later, that they had miraculous power and they were sent to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom. And that the followers of the early church, they devoted themselves to modeling after that. Not just to sitting in class and hearing about it, but doing it. They devoted themselves to following that instruction. And fellowship, that is the Greek word koinonia, which is life-sharing, companionship, partnership, communion, it also means that between people that have a, a relative level of intimacy, they openly communicate with one another at a deep and a heart level. So that one thing, they devoted themselves to following the lifestyle of the apostles and to fellowship means that those two aren't separatable. You can't have your spirituality without fellowship. You can't have your It's just me and Jesus. Jesus was the chief cornerstone for the church connected together, to which we are all rightly fitted and connected. That uh, Luke was writing, he was saying, there aren't really any vagabonds, free spirits, and lone rangers in the body of Christ. He was saying they devoted themselves to the apostles' teacher and to following the lifestyle in connection with their brothers and sisters, with their community, with the early church, with one another. Their spirituality was connected in an inextricable way from their relationship with one another. And the second thing, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The breaking of bread is like, um, it, it was like a phrase, like you could say, Mi casa su casa. My house is your house. It's, a, it's the common meal. It's table fellowship. It's eating and sharing together. And prayer is not just like saying a blessing before the meal. That's not what that, that phrase is saying. Prayer there is prosuke. It's all kinds of passionate prayer and worship together. It's intercession. It's supplication. It's prayers of comfort. It's asking and relating to one another on a deep level and giving and celebrating God's faithfulness. Basically, what he was saying is is they didn't have fellowship without Jesus at the center. It's easy to be a fun addict in today's culture without Jesus at the center. There's plenty of entertainment. There's plenty of activities. Even around here, the weather's so nice, you can actually be outdoors You can spend your life being entertained with fellowship at your gym and never have Jesus at the center. 
There's all kinds of ways to have a fun life around here without Jesus at the center. But the key of the early church is that their spirituality was always connected with a close fellowship with one another, and that when they hang out and had fun together, Jesus was at the center. If you get nothing else for the rest of the season, and you only come to church once a month, that's the point. If you do nothing else, keep your spirituality rooted and connected with your friends, your church family, and keep your hanging out. Yes, invite people over for dinner. Take them out to lunch. Go hiking with them. Go mountain biking with them. Go surfing with them. But don't miss the opportunity to ask and to relate and to share and to pray and to celebrate God's faithfulness in your life. Don't miss the chance to have fun with Jesus at the center. Because the end game, you could see that within 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead, there was a movement that had, and a transformed community that had excitement and momentum, and it literally said the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Does that sound like something you'd want to be a part of? Yes, we need that. We need to recapture the influence of the early church. And it comes first in devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer as inseparable, inextricable realities. Well, how did they get there? Yes, I already said that. Okay, boom. Okay. Um, how did they get there? We're going to go back to the... Um, Okay, we're going to get back to that. Um, our scripture lesson for today, we're going to go back to um, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and we're going to take a look at an interaction that Jesus had after he was raised from the dead, and he was meeting with his followers, his friends, and he was about to tell them kind of what the next step was, because he had been with them, he appeared to them for 40 days, several weeks, a little over a month, he was with them after he was raised from the dead. And so Acts, the book of Acts was written by um, Luke, who was uh, a physician, and he also wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he, was, uh, he would be what we would consider like a man of science and history, like he was very, he did the research, he did the documentation, and he compiled what he considered to be a telling of facts. Now, the Gospel of John is super, like, uh, poetic and talks about all the, the beauty. So a lot of the, the, the amazing scriptures we love are the poetic ones from the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of Luke was like a telling of facts. And the book of Acts was actually part B of that. Um, and uh, Luke was writing to a person named Theophilus. But that person probably wasn't just an actual dude named Theophilus. Theophilus is just the Greek word for friend of God. So he's saying, friend of God. That would include you. That would, he, was in, he was writing to other people who were friends of God, who were followers of the way, who were Christians of the day, um, saying, in my former book, which was the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, or a friend of God, 
I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Everyone say, kingdom of God. He wasn't saying, he wasn't like in his earthly ministry, he wasn't just talking about salvation and heaven and hell and that kind of thing. He was preaching and he was speaking about the kingdom. He told parables about the kingdom. He told stories about the kingdom. He taught about the kingdom. He preached about the kingdom. And even after he was risen, raised from the dead and he went back to his friends, he was still talking about the kingdom. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Say wait. For the gift of my father, for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, This is as much as you can get from an admonishment from Jesus in this part. He's saying, guys, you're still focused on the wrong thing. Saying it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, Jesus, come back, wait. Where are you going? You were supposed to, you were supposed to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? He... All through his earthly ministry, his disciples, his friends, they kept waiting for the day that he was going to arrest the power from the Roman emperor and give it back to the holy seed of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel. They kept waiting for that point and it never came. So now after he was raised from the dead and he keeps talking about this kingdom and kingdom, they, they ask him, they say, Lord, Are you finally going to do what we've been waiting for you to do all this time? He says, you're still thinking about the wrong things. And so they watch him. Bye, Lord. I guess you're leaving us to fend for ourselves. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them probably angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And then the apostles turned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, 
James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together continually in prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Why did Jesus make them wait? Why did Jesus make his followers wait? I mean, was there any, any, uh, anything else theologically that needed to be accomplished? I mean, death was taken captive. The price for sin was paid. He was already wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes, we were already healed. Was there anything preventing theologically on a grand cosmic scale preventing from the Holy Spirit to be present on, in the body of Christ with those who believed on that day? What? Okay, well, I'm not sure that there was anything that else had to be accomplished. Because the Holy Spirit really, because there was no communion between um, uh, there was no communion between uh, God and people in the same way that there is today um, because of the reign of sin and death in the earth. And because the Holy Spirit could not fill a temple that was not made or recreated or regenerated, born, being born again into the kingdom, at that time, the, the price had been paid, he had been raised from the dead, the curse had been broken. The veil had been torn. So why did he make them wait? I can, I can assure you it was for a purpose. I can assure you it was for something good. It was not a game. He wasn't thinking, well, I'm going to wait till they clean their room. Well... I'm going to wait till they get their house in order. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to see and watch them squirm a little bit and see how they like what's going on. No. There's something in the waiting. There's something in the waiting. Three things happen in the waiting. One, waiting purifies our motives. You know, oftentimes we wait for everything to change around us. When we talk about waiting on the Lord, we're, we're talking about waiting for promotions and new jobs and for circumstances to change and for prodigal children to come home and for the... Uh, you know, provision to come and circumstances to change. We're waiting on all these external things. And really, the waiting of the Lord first is the work that the Lord does in us. It purifies us. It, it allows the work, like um, John Evans in Daybreak Chapel, he talked about, he said, you know, there is, John and Sarah, they said that... Um, uh, because all of these things that had just happened had been so new, they really hadn't sunk in or seeped into their heart to such a degree that they could really, um, it hadn't really 
gone to the depths of their understanding yet. And so in that period of waiting, when they had their eyes fixed on the promise of the Holy Spirit, hey, don't think about the promise as being a, a me taking the power from the Roman Empire and granting it to you. Get your eyes off that. Get your eyes on the promise of the Holy Spirit. When they moved their attention to that, they were in a position, they were facing the right direction that the Lord could begin to let that seep in and purify their motives and allow the truth and the power that had been released seep into them and fully penetrate and saturate their heart and their soul so that they could be ready to receive the promise. It's not that we get our house in order and we clean up our room, but when we face the promise when we stand and look at what God has set out on the right thing, it allows him to work in us in ways he can't in other, if we're not facing the right, the right way. Because in that, we still have, we have free will to look and to focus on what we want. And so when he gives us a promise, we steer our consciousness and our focus to him so that he can do the work in us and make us ready to receive the promise. Waiting develops our relationship with God. And it develops a strength of heart from a posture of humility and reverence. We recognize it's not on our terms and in our timing and in our strength. When we wait and we face the promise, we're humbling ourselves we're being reverent before him. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord and he shall strengthen your heart. He will build you up. He will bring, he will strengthen what's inside of you when you wait on him. Again, I say, wait on the Lord. That's Psalm 27, 14. John Wesley, one of our church fathers, founder of the Methodist movement, said, before you seek any worldly value, any, before you go set out to feed the homeless and before you go out uh, to bring, um, to, to take care of the needy and the poor and before you go out um, to, to start a school or build a business or be a missionary, before you go out to do some good in this world, seek the one who created all worldly value. He redeemed you in order that you might be free to believe and trust and love him as who he is. Let him reign without a rival. Let him possess all your heart and rule alone. Let him be your one desire, your joy, your love. And with eternity secure, everything in time and space will fall into its proper place. There's something in the waiting. There's something in the waiting, not just waiting for stuff on the outside to change, but waiting for God to change us in the waiting so that we can receive the promise and walk in power. Number two, waiting reveals power. How many know the world around us needs power? It's getting a little quiet in here. Yeah, really, the, the world doesn't need more philosophy. I mean, I will never be as good a teacher as Simon Sinek 
as Patrick Lencioni, as Joseph Grenny, as probably Sheryl Sandberg, Brene Brown, many of the, the great thinkers of today. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be as good a teacher as they are. They teach amazing things about relationships and social constructs and leadership, and they're all great and wonderful things. I, I learn from them. But we have something, the people of God, the body of Christ, that no philosophy can compete with. It's the power of God. Paul said he didn't go about just with words that sounded good. Only the body of Christ can lay their hands on somebody and say, be healed in the name of Jesus. Only the body of Christ, anointed with his spirit, can go and address a spiritual force of wickedness that has held somebody bound and captive and say, be free in the name of Jesus. Only the body of Christ can do that. That's what something, it doesn't matter how good you can teach and how good you can philosophize. You are connected. Your spirituality is connected. You're part of the body of Christ. You are a member. You are anointed and appointed to distribute and express the power of God in the earth. That is something that only we have the privilege of doing. Waiting reveals power. The early church was to be fitted with power to fully proclaim the gospel and a dramatic social transformation and expansion of the kingdom in the earth like never before. And in many cases, we haven't seen a lot I mean, we've seen, we've seen great renewals and revivals, and that's great. I don't want to just copy what the early church did, but I want to recapture the influence that they had. And it came from the power of God. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, verse 16. He said, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with... What? What? Come on, with, with power through his spirit in your inner being. When things just happen right away and easy, we're often confused that it's our own strength. Waiting reveals where the power comes from, and that is to the benefit of our character. It's to the benefit of how we handle the power when it's expressed how we proclaim the source of power to others, and who gets the glory. If I'm really honest, which I try to always be, my character can't really handle getting very much glory. When people are giving me a lot of affirmation and a lot of kudos because it's easy and things are just happening, it's easy for me to go into just kind of almost taking the glory for myself. But when we have to wait for a promise, it shows that the power comes from the promise maker, not the one waiting, not the one walking it out today. We have to be ready to receive power. I'm going to say there is not a shortage of power in his kingdom. There is just a shortage of people who are ready. There really is something in the waiting. 
And waiting allows for God's timing. You know, we are often an anxious people, jumping the gun and getting out ahead of God's plans. Um, you know, even Mich- uh, God started speaking to Michelle and I about going into full-time ministry and about our role here at Agape in January of 2012. Before anyone was talking about it, before Pastor Mike had approached us, and so there was not really anybody that we could talk to about it because if you open your mouth, it's, it's almost like you're taking and opening the door to something that's not really yours. And so the Lord spoke to us to just to be pregnant with it, to let it mature in us. But I, when he gave us that promise and we began to fast and pray, we quickly realized that we were not ready. But it was only when he gave us the promise that we could see and understand how not ready we were. But in staying focused, positioned, turned toward that promise and towards him who made the promise, we could make ourselves available and ready to be prepared so that he could do the work in us over time. And as we waited, it allowed for him to make the timing perfect where people don't get left behind and new seasons are able to start on time and different roads and intersections are all able to be woven together where people don't become the byproduct of our own manufactured plans and problems. You see, when I see something and I go and take it, I usually take it from somebody else. When the Lord gives something and you wait for the promise for him to bring the provision to you, he doesn't take it from anyone. And so when we wait for the Lord's timing, I'm not talking about sitting in a corner and doing nothing. Waiting is a description of our attitude and our availability and humility to the Lord more than it is a description of our activity level. When we're waiting on the Lord for that promise, he can do in us what he wants to then do through us. Because personal transformation always gives birth to social transformation, never the way around. When your circumstances change, they don't make you a better person. God makes you a better person, and, he put, and in that, it's the river of living water from you, through you, that waters the garden around you. It's not when all this stuff out here changes It's within the stuff in here changes. And that's known not just in the kingdom of God. That's known, that's actually known in many areas. You know, there was a perfect timing, as Randy said, about the timing of the, of, uh, of Pentecost, of the timing of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It was exactly seven weeks of seven days from the point of his crucifixion. There's a perfection about God's timing. Jesus didn't tell them, wait until the day of Pentecost when I'm going to pour out my spirit. He said, wait. Don't focus on the days, the times. Wait and focus on the promise. Contend for the promise. Believe in the promise maker. Keep your eyes on the promise and leave the timing to me. And his timing was perfect. 
Yes, I know. Seven weeks of seven days, right? I mean, seven, the number of perfection, the number of days of creation. Yes, it really did happen that way. When he was crucified, he was then in the earth for two days, keeping the people that were in Abraham's bosom, getting them uh, out, all those who had died in faith, believing in the future of a Messiah. He went and got them and raised them, right? And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And then there was 40 days he spent with the disciples. um, And then he sent them on a Sabbath day's journey back to Jerusalem. And then there were six days that they waited there. And then right on the Pentecost, seven weeks of seven days, the Holy Spirit was poured out. It's the perfection of God's timing. And that allows all of the people that needed to be in the streets on that day and receive the gospel and hear it in their own language and all of those things that needed to all get into place. His ways are higher than our ways. They are higher than our ways. There is something in the waiting for you and for everyone around you. There's something in the waiting. And you know, Pentecost, it was described as the day of first fruits. It was described as the first fruits of the wheat harvest in Exodus and Numbers. Literally, the Holy Spirit being poured out was a first fruit of what God would do through the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in every age into the consummation of his kingdom. And you and I get to be a part of that today. Yeah, I want to show you a four-minute clip from the Bible series about the coming of Pentecost because I want you to know it was an intense time. Like, there was a lot of opposition and mistrust and difficulty. There were people out to persecute the followers of Jesus. They wanted to squash any remaining evidence of that movement completely under their feet. And you and I also, will maybe we live in it today, maybe we will in the future. The growth and the momentum of the church is not dependent on a level of support or opposition from the culture around it. We are already in our own kingdom with Jesus. The kingdom is coming. All the people that start waiting, though, they don't finish waiting. Do you know there was 120 people that started waiting in that upper room? And there was only a handful that made it six days. God wasn't extending time to weed people out. He wasn't saying these 105 people that gave up along the way. He didn't want them to give up. He wasn't waiting for them to leave. He was waiting for people to be ready. And he was doing that preparation in people. But some of us, and I believe our church, we, we, we do need to wait and take a step back up to the upper room to prayer, to worship, to keeping our spirituality connected with one another, to stepping up out of busyness, to stepping up out of distractedness, 
to stepping up to an upper room where we're still in a posture of waiting on the Lord. Going when he says go. Stopping when he says stop. In humility, in reverence. Allowing him to do his work in us so that we can be ready. We can be ready for him to pour himself out through us. That's what this next season's gonna be about. That's why we've started the worship well on the first Wednesdays, just to come and to pray together, to worship together. That's why I'm gonna encourage you to invite some friends or maybe some new friends over for dinner and have fun and have your dinner. Don't miss Jesus being at the center. Don't miss praying together. We need to clear our minds to hear from him. There's so many exceedingly precious promises in his word. And I don't want to see one fall flat around here. Because there's no shortage of power. There might be a shortage of faith. There might be a shortage of people who are ready. And that's not out of condemnation. I count myself in that number. I really do. I'm not walking in all that I want to walk in. But we've decided, and I've decided I want to, I want to wait on him. want to wait on him. So for the next few minutes, um, I'd like to sing, yes, I know, don't laugh. I'd like to sing a, um, a song that uh, as I was preparing for this message, I just became just overwhelmed with God's faithfulness and his goodness and It's a very simple chorus. It just says, Lord, we worship you. Now we lift your holy name. Lord, we worship you. Send your all-consuming flame. We need your presence, Lord. As we sing with one accord of your glory, Lord. Hallelujah. So I'm going to begin to sing. You can just... Begin to enter in, begin to just what it looks like to wait on the Lord for you and for our church. And we'll sing it through a few times, and as you can, I would like encourage you to stand and to sing together in one accord. And let's enjoy his presence and allow him to begin to do his work in us.
thankful, God, for just all the ways that you knit our hearts together as your people. Lord, as we begin to take a posture of waiting, not to sit in a corner, but a posture of waiting in our hearts, Lord, that recognizes, Lord, that we're the ones that need to be ready and prepared and that you do the inner work of preparation. Lord, we behold your beauty and we're grateful for your promises. Lord, we long to see the power of God in our church and in our community. We long to see the power of God over those who are hurting and discouraged and bound. That freedom would come. That the joy of our salvation would be renewed in a mighty and awesome way. Lord, as we enter this season, God, to step up to the upper room. Lord, it's you that's in the waiting. It's your victory that's in the waiting. Wash away the discouragement in our life. Wash away the anxiety in our life. Wash away the frustrations in our life. Make us your people, vessels that you can pour into and pour through. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen, amen. It's been wonderful to fellowship in his presence and with his word with you this morning. And I pray that you would go and wait on the Lord. prayer team, can you come forward? And If you need prayer for anything at all, don't leave without getting some prayer, getting some agreement, finding some support. And we'll believe God with you. And if not, you are dismissed to be blessed and to go with God into our great land and our great community.